0: This is a time of testing. We face an attack on our democracy and on truth, a raging virus, growing inequity, the sting of systemic racism, a climate in crisis, America's role in the world. Any one of these would be enough to challenge us in profound ways. But the fact is, we face them all at once. Presenting this nation with one of the gravest responsibilities we've had. Now we're going to be tested. Are we going to step up, all of us? It's time for boldness, for there's so much to do. You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee.
1: And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's January 22nd.
0: That was President Joe Biden delivering his inaugural address on Wednesday, describing the many crises facing the U.S. as his administration begins. He described the time we're living through as a winter of peril and possibility. Among Biden's first acts as president was signing a series of executive orders aimed at improving the national response to our most immediate crisis, COVID-19 which has now claimed more than 400,000 American lives. The president is calling for a wartime effort to accelerate the production of everything needed to fight the virus, including vaccines. He has set a lofty goal for the nation, to administer 100 million COVID-19 vaccines in his first 100 days in office. According to RAND experts, a successful vaccine strategy must keep the shots moving, rather than stockpile them in anticipation of changing demand. Right now, stockpiling is happening mostly at the state and local levels, for a variety of reasons. For example, there's a desire to ensure enough vaccines for people's second doses, to allow for planning to transport the vaccines, and to ensure vaccinations align with workers' schedules. But stockpiling is a logistical failure, our researchers say. For one thing, current stockpiles far exceed what's needed right now for second doses. And rather than holding on to vaccines for those second doses, which are three to four weeks off, decision makers could plan for newly produced vaccines to be used for the booster shots. Stockpiling also adds risk. Freezers can break, storms can knock out power, and accidents can happen. But even if none of these risks ever happen... Every day that a vaccine dose waits in a freezer raises the risk of another person getting COVID-19. So, to save the most lives, policymakers should stop incentivizing stockpiling and, quote, push to deliver vaccines to people instead of freezers.
1: A branch of the federal government has not been so seriously threatened since 9-11. That's brands Brian Michael Jenkins, a renowned terrorism expert, discussing the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. He says that addressing this threat demands the inquiry of a national commission. Creating such a commission would be in step with responses to past instances of politically charged violence committed in and against the U.S. For example, after the Kennedy assassination, there was the Warren Commission. And after the September 11th attacks, of course, there was the 9-11 Commission. So what are the potential benefits? National commissions are designed to conduct impartial inquiries, assemble experts, issue hard criticism when warranted, and express opinions that others, including members of Congress, may share but will not state publicly. Commissions are also temporary, and they have no authority beyond the persuasiveness of their findings. They are also required to produce a public report. Commissions view the American people as their primary constituency, and the national interest as their sole guide. Simply put, a commission to examine the events of January 6th could analyze whether the attack was an isolated uprising or a sign of more violence to come. It could also help prevent similar attacks in the future. Finally, the commission could help answer a fundamental question. How do we maintain an open government that guarantees the public access to their officials while also protecting those officials, physically and psychologically, from intimidation and terror?
0: Improving individuals' media literacy could help counter truth decay, the diminishing role of facts in American public life. But how can media literacy education be implemented most effectively? One challenge is that there are a lot of standards out there when it comes to teaching media literacy. So, Rand researchers reviewed these standards through the lens of countering truth decay, and developed a concise list of media literacy standards that directly address the four key elements of the truth decay phenomenon. The growing disagreement about facts, Americans' declining trust in formerly respected sources, the blurring line between opinion and fact, and the increasing volume and influence of opinion over fact. The media literacy standards we identified that can counter these trends are wide-ranging. For example, one standard stresses the ability to understand how online information sources can limit facts and perspectives, such as search engine algorithms that determine what information you see online. Another standard focuses on the ability to analyze information for bias, deception, or manipulation. And yet another deals with being able to recognize how your own personal and cultural perspectives can influence how you interpret information. All in all, there are 15 media literacy standards, a relatively short and focused list that may be useful for teachers, school leaders, curriculum developers, and policymakers. You can find them all in the full report and read more about media literacy as a tool to counter truth decay at rand.org/truthdecay
1: The US is facing several national security challenges. But at the same time, the federal budget is under serious pressure because of public health and infrastructure crises. This is part of the reason why there is growing public interest in rethinking America's role in the world. One option is to adopt a grand strategy of restraint, in which the US takes a more cooperative approach toward other powers reduces the size of its military, and ends or renegotiates some security commitments. A new RAND report explores the policy implications of embarking down this path. The authors explain that, generally, a strategy of restraint would mean relying more on diplomacy to settle conflicts of interest, encouraging other states to lead, and preserving military power to defend vital U.S. interests. And, if the U.S. had a smaller military and fewer security commitments, there would have to be a higher bar for the use of military force compared with current policy. The authors also provide some recommendations for those who are advocating for a grand strategy of restraint. In particular, they say that advocates of this approach should identify what changes in great power capabilities and behavior would imperil U.S. vital interests, the maritime areas where the U.S. should retain superiority, priorities for peacetime military activities, and war scenarios that should guide the Defense Department's planning.
0: As more and more marijuana retailers open over time, the density of these recreational sellers is associated with more marijuana use and greater intensity of use among young adults. That's according to a new RAND study. This study is among the first to examine the links between the density of marijuana outlets and marijuana use over time. It's also the first to include unlicensed dispensaries in such an analysis. The key takeaway from the study, that the density of marijuana retailers is associated with more and higher use among young adults, may be important to consider when developing strategies to mitigate the potential public health harms from expanded legal access to marijuana. And it may be particularly important because young adults are at greater risk for heavy and problematic marijuana use. More than half of young adults initiate marijuana use by the age of 21, and heavy use in young adulthood can lead to physical and cognitive health problems down the road.